When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is a rarity because we have on a guest who I have really come to respect and admire and really look forward every time their email is in my inbox. However, even though I think this person is doing some of the best journalism around and some of the best news analysis around, even if I end up disagreeing with his conclusions, I am asking you sincerely, and I'm not joking about this, please, whatever you do, do not subscribe to his newsletter. And I'll tell you why. Uh, every time, well, not every time, but almost every time you hear me sounding a combination of thoughtful, fair, reasonable and logical, chances are I am plagiarizing directly from Tangle News. And all of a sudden, if you're reading Tangle News as well, all of a sudden, when I sound like I know what I'm talking about, you'll know that I don't. I'm just parroting what has been written for me in Tangle News. So it's kind of like the magician's trick is ruined. So please, whatever you do, do not subscribe to Tangle News. That being said, I am a subscriber. And the best thing that I've read to date on the conflict in the Middle East appeared in Tangle News last week. And uh, that has made our guest, Isaac Saul, the founder of Tangle News, the only person in the last week that has been shared on social media, whose work has been shared on social media by both Elon Musk and me. It is a small, small group of uh, opinion leaders that have been shared by both Elon Musk and me. Very, very pleased to welcome back to this program. Isaac Saul. Isaac, it's good to talk to you. It's good to be here, Frank. Thank you so much for having me on, man. And I very much appreciate the introduction. It's uh, humbling and I'm I'm honored you're a regular reader, man. Uh, No doubt about it. Uh, I'm hoping um, one day to uh, be able to save my pennies and uh, afford the subscription version, but uh, I or the paid subscription (laughs) model, but all my money is tied up in whatever the rock is raising money for. Isaac, uh, by the way, before we talk about the Middle East, I have to tell you the piece that you did, I don't want to kind of give away the twists and turns of it, but the piece that you did, I guess just over a week ago, where with with your 90 year old Uber driver was not only such an interesting story, but the way that you told it, it was really wonderful. And uh, I definitely want to encourage people to read it. I've shared it on my Facebook page. People should check it out. Facebook.com slash Morano fan. I'm imagining you got quite a bit of a response to that article as well, Isaac. Yeah, we did. It was awesome. I mean, it was, uh, you know, the the long story short of it is that I basically ended up inside an Uber being driven around by a legendary Los Angeles journalist who was working Uber to make a little money on the side so he could afford to travel and enjoy some things in his life. And we plugged the story of my experience meeting him in the newsletter and pushed a bunch of people to go read his book. And we got like thousands of responses of people 
who said that they went and did that. And I actually connected with him and got to talk to him on the phone last week and followed up, which is really awesome. So it's been a, it's been a wild couple of weeks for us at Tangle, man. Lots of, lots of big stories, lots of attention, lots of uh, outside eyes on us for the first time, which has been really fun, really exciting, despite all the craziness going on in the world right now. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine. All right, let's talk about some of that craziness that's been going on in the world right now. You've been a journalist for a while now. As I mentioned, you're the founder of uh, of Tangle News. Your perspective is particularly interesting and I think particularly valuable because you actually lived in Israel. Give folks a little bit of an idea of your life journey. You're, you're also Jewish and you lived in Israel. How long did you live in Israel for? And I could just read your essay. That's how good it is, but I thought it would be much better if we could kind of converse about it. How long did you live in Israel for? And what's it like when you wake up seeing the news of all this death and destruction due to a terrorist attack? And and you think that that could have been you? Yeah. So I traveled back and forth to Israel a few times, as many Jews do. And then I moved there in 2013 for about six months. And I actually lived in East Jerusalem, which is an area that, especially for the last couple of decades, has been, you know, the the site of a lot of tension. And I was living in a yeshiva in a Jewish boys school, which was a really fascinating experience. And then also getting to travel all around the Middle East and interact a lot with Arabs and Muslims in Jerusalem and other places in Israel and in Egypt. And, you know, I felt like I got a really good understanding, not just of the sort of traditional Jewish Israeli Zionist perspective, but also what it was like for people, Arab Muslims living in Israel, living in Jerusalem, and also Arab Muslims in the surrounding states who, you know, interact with Israel. So that's my personal background. I mean, as this story broke, you know, it was totally... (laughs) It's it's incomprehensible is really the only word to describe it. I mean, there's so much about daily life in that country that relies on a belief in the safety and security that's being provided by the Israeli government and the IDF. And, you know, what I said in my piece was some party in the desert with a bunch of 20 something year olds is exactly the kind of thing I could have gotten invited to and gone to on a whim, assuming that if a few hundred people were going. It was a totally safe choice to make, regardless of, you know, whether it was a few miles from Gaza or the West Bank or wherever. Um, and a lot of those people who are there are people who, you know, are probably pretty left politically, people who really want a peace process between Israel and Palestine, which is sort of one of the understated, really sick ironies of this mm. whole story is that, you know, the, the, the kinds of people that are going to a peace and love concert two miles from Gaza in Southern Israel are are not the kinds of people who are like these ardent anti-Arab Zionists that often get portrayed as like the far right in the news. They're probably people who really care about, you know, the the Palestinian cause and, and want to see some kind of one state or two state solution. And, you know, all of that just makes the whole thing a lot more tragic because I think what Hamas did has you know, turned up a lot of people's attitudes negatively towards the the Arab people and the Palestinian cause. So it's a really sad thing in that regard. And it is really frightening to imagine that it happened the way it did, where it did, and, and kind of frankly, how easily it happened. I mean, there wasn't 
much resistance, which is also part of what's so scary. Now, let me ask you a question that I hate. And uh, my mother asked me the other day, and she was expecting a yes or no answer. And obviously, I think this is a question that requires a great deal more nuance than simply yes or no. And you address this a bit in your piece. Are you pro-Israel? You're Jewish. You lived in Israel. Are you pro-Israel? Yeah, it's a good question. And (laughs) my answer is not going to be simple. I mean, I I would say I believe in and care very much about the cause that pushed the state of Israel into existence, which was giving the Jewish people a homeland. I believe that Jews have, you know, a historical claim and a, a very well-documented archaeological history to point to to say that this was the land that they were initially expelled from themselves. Um, And I have a very deep connection to Israel and a deep love for Israel, and I want to see it continue to be a place where Jews can go live and, and be safe and have their own kind of Jewish nation. I mean, I believe in that project, the project of the Jewish state, especially in the wake of World War II and all the context with which it was created, which is that Jews have faced persecution for thousands of years, basically everywhere they've gone. The issue with that is, you know, creating the state of Israel also required the certain kind of expulsion and violence and, you know, difficulties put onto the Arab people that Jews have traditionally faced, you know, for the last two millennia. So it's not as simple as just saying I'm pro-Israel. I mean, I want to see the state of Israel continue to exist, obviously. Uh, Well, maybe not obviously, but that is something that I want. Um, But at the same time, I want it to exist in a way that I can feel really proud of, that I feel like is just and ethical. And I'm not entirely sure that that is what we have right now. And the fact that I'm not entirely sure about that makes me question, you know, what side of certain conflicts I should be on and what side of certain debates I should be on. And speaking to a lot of Arabs and Muslims and Palestinians, I've opened myself up to a lot of different worldviews out there that challenge my own perspectives and a lot of people out there who, you know, feel like they are the the side that's being oppressed. They are the side who is continuously being subject to violence and unfair government procedures and all the kinds of things that I think, you know, we don't want to see in a just and fair society. And so listening to those stories, it's hard to to feel like this is a simple issue and and hard to say that I'm pro-Israel or pro-Palestine or whatever. You know, I think I, I come down on different sides of the issue depending on what specific argument or topic or debate around the conflict is happening. And, um, you know, people just have to accept that it's not not black and white. One of the frustrating things to me is that in Israel, you the media there does allow um, a wide variety of opinion on this subject. And there's a lot of debate and a lot of room for nuance. You've written that American partisans have a very narrow view of this history. And I think that's kind of the thing that's frustrating to me is that it seems like in America, everybody does try to make this a black or white issue. And you say that an Americentric lens on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is infuriating to witness. Why? Well, for a few reasons. I mean, I, I think regardless of what side you land on, 
you can come to an understanding that the way many Americans view the, the conflict is contradictory. So the example that I gave in my piece that I think makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, I actually stole from a, a fantastic journalist named Lee Fang. Who was on the show last week as well, by the way. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Uh, awesome guy. Great guy. Very, you know, somebody who I think sees things with a lot of clarity and has very consistent principles and ethics as a reporter, which I really appreciate. You know, he said that <laughs> the irony of seeing like people out in the streets with these signs, you know, leftists out in the streets who are like, queers for Muslims or LGBT groups who are coming out and kind of aligning their position of disenfranchisement in the United States with what Palestinians are experiencing. You know, those people, as Lee put it, would be beheaded by Hamas <laughs> if they showed up to, to, you know, join the cause for the, the pro-Palestine fight in Gaza. And at the same time, a lot of conservatives and a lot of right-wingers who are insisting that, you know, the Palestinians should kind of just sit back and, and take it and and be subject to a certain unfair rule, be subject to blockades, be subject to military occupation, all these things. These are the kinds of conservatives and right wingers who, you know, would rebel twice as violently if they were in the same position. I mean, the Americans, especially on the right, are are proudly pro-gun and pro-independence and pro, you know, all the things that make you imagine what they would do and how they would act if a government tried to come into their land and take it or a government tried to disenfranchise them through the law or treat them differently. I mean, all of that stuff is exactly the kind of are, are all the reasons that a lot of conservatives in America arm themselves is to protect themselves from that kind of thing. So, you know, you see that and it's like, you can see how both sides should be on different sides in some ways and how they're both sort of looking through the American, the American prism at the issue in a way that I think is, is really difficult. And I'll just say one more thing about that, which is that, you know, in, in the United States, I think we often equate weakness with a certain kind of morality and power with a certain kind of corruption. We see one side that's powerful and we assume that they must have done something evil and they must be doing something bad. And we see one side that's weak and we assume that they must be on some moral and just cause. And I think this is especially true of people on the left. And it isn't always right. You know, right. It, it's, it's true that Israel is more powerful and it's true that Hamas is weak. But that doesn't mean that everything Hamas does is ethical or moral or we must support. When they go kill a bunch of children and kidnap people, we can say that that's bad and condemn it. This should not be complicated. Um, but for some reason, when it comes to that American prism, it gets really complicated. It, you know, we're talking with Isaac Saul. He's the founder of, uh, of Tangle News. You can Google Tangle News and uh, read the piece that we're talking about. You indicated in the piece that... Um, you were expecting that you would tick off people on both sides, both the pro-Israeli side and the pro-Palestinian side. After your piece was published, did that in fact happen? Did you pick? Did you tick off people on both sides? And if so, how come? Yeah, uh, yes, it did. It, it it played out pretty much how I expected it to, which was that um, a lot of kind of people on the left or, um, you know, Arabs, Muslims, Palestinians who read the piece reached out to me and latched on 
to certain sentences in the piece, like my belief that, you know, the Jewish people needed a homeland and that they had some kind of historical claim to Israel. A lot of them were really pissed off about that and focused on that and, you know, accused me of being a Zionist and things like that, which I don't necessarily think I am. And then a lot of people, you know, a lot of Israelis and a lot of Jews wrote in and they were furious that, you know, I sought to explain why Hamas might act violently in the way they did. I didn't seek to justify it, but I sought to explain it, which was to say, you know, they have over decades and decades, the Palestinian people have seen the sort of two state solution process fail. They've seen certain peace processes fail. They feel like they're losing more and more land every year. They feel like they're losing more and more rights every year. All of those things build up enough animosity that a group like Hamas might get support. And that doesn't make anything that they did any more just or right or okay. But it just means that when you see Hamas do what they did, and then you see some Palestinian people support them, you can understand why that relationship might happen that way. And a lot of Israelis and a lot of Jews are really upset that I wrote that way. They, they were really upset that I blamed Israel for some of the plight of the Palestinian people. And so, yeah, it pissed off a lot of people. But you know what, Frank, I'll tell you this. The vast majority of the feedback that I got was overwhelmingly positive, and I, that happened despite the fact I pissed off a lot of people mm. on both sides. And I think it's a testament to the fact that when it's laid out plainly, a lot of people can and will accept the fact that there is nuance and complexity to topics like this, and that it's not a simple black and white thing. The issue is that there's so many people out there, so many influencers and political pundits and all this stuff who try to make it black and white. But when you expose people to a really, you know, a complex response that has some nuance, I think they can be open minded to it if it's delivered to them in a way that's, you know, thoughtful, which is what I tried to do. And so, you know, I knew it was going to upset people because obviously this is a really emotionally charged time. Sure. But I, I was quite happy to see how positively it was received and how, you know, it, it reached a lot of people. It was shared like crazy and went viral and all that good stuff, which I was really proud of and really happy about because it was a piece that um, I put a lot of thought into. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. You are the fifth or sixth person that I'm going to try to ask this question to. I've yet to get an answer to this question that I've found satisfactory. And that it is the immediate the, the immediate result of this Hamas terrorist attack 
is going to be a much more difficult situation for the Palestinians. In the short run, there's bombs coming their way, buildings destroyed, electricity cut off, food cut off, people losing their lives. In the long run, this probably makes the idea of an independent Palestinian state off the table for the foreseeable future. With that in mind, why would Hamas do this? As evil as they may be, somebody at Hamas has got to have a brain knowing that this is going to result in the a much in misery for the Palestinians now and in the future. So with that in mind, why would they do this? Yeah, I, for, I mean, it's the million dollar question. I'll say that there's there's two two reasons that I see that I think are um, are pretty clear. One is that Hamas feels as if there's no other path forward. So in some ways, this is an act of desperation. I think they probably sense that things for the Palestinian people are not getting better under their rule, and they don't see any kind of peace process happening. So there's a there's an attitude here that's like, why not just kick the bushes, light the house on fire, throw a grenade inside, and just see what happens and see how we come out on the other side. I think that's, you know, could, could be a rational thing to do on their part as irrational and, you know, awful their actions were. I think the, the second part is that if, as we suspect, there is some relationship between, you know, Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran and, and they're functioning as a proxy in some ways, I think dragging Israel and the United States into a regional conflict Mm. at this moment is not the worst thing for those groups. I mean, we're already stretched thin. We're already funding the war in Ukraine. We're, we're already worried about China invading Taiwan and we're, we're beefing up our military presence for that. And now there's another regional conflict that we have to worry about. And I think if you're Iran, if you're Lebanon, if your Hamas, maybe there's a sense that this is kind of an opening, that there's there's some weakness, there's a, a kink in the armor here. And that that's something that I think could very well be in play. And we'll understand more, you know, if Lebanon keeps acting provocatively, if Iran starts, you know, taking action in this conflict, then I think that might be an answer that that is what they mm-hmm. want. They want to drag us into this somehow. Um, and, you know, the last time there was a big regional conflict in the Middle East that we got involved in, it it was kind of good for Iran in some ways. I mean, we were we, we failed in Iraq. We failed in Afghanistan and it built support in the Arab world for uh, the anti-Western sentiment, which is what Iran wants fundamentally. So um, that 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 would be my take on that. Uh, you know, I, I think we'll have a lot more clarity when we see how those actors, you know, what they do over the next few weeks will, will tell us a lot more about where things are headed. One of the things I uh, was talking with Isaac Saul, he's the founder of Tangle News. One of the things, Isaac, that uh, people were talking about in the immediate aftermath was uh, of this was the disbelief that something like this could happen. You always hear so much about the Shin Bet and the Mossad and the Israeli intelligence apparatus in general, and especially when they have been the beneficiary of so much a 
assistance from the United States and the United States intelligence agencies. And then uh, you raise the question, how could this happen? How could there have been such a massive intelligence failure? And then uh, very quickly, others would say, well, it's insensitive to raise that question right now. How do you feel, Isaac? Do you think it's insensitive to raise the question of how there could be an intelligence failure of this magnitude? No, I think it's critical to raise that question. I mean, I, I, I feel strongly that, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu, in my opinion, is a failed leader. I think he's, he has divided the country and distracted it with his attempts at judicial reform. He's pushed uh, the government to a more extremist right-wing position that has destabilized this conflict and the tensions around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict by expanding settlements in the West Bank. And now the one single thing that many Israelis hung their hat on, which was despite all of his shortcomings, despite the many ways he was dividing the country, despite his corruption trial and all this stuff, he was this sort of storied warrior, this soldier who was just, no matter what, going to have a strong Israel that was very safe. And now he's overseen the, the deadliest attack that we've ever seen on Israel. So, uh, you know, I think we, we, A, have to ask that question and seek out an answer. And B, you know, I think we probably have some idea already. I mean, I, I listened to Condoleezza Rice get interviewed a week or two ago, and she said something that I thought was really poignant, which was, you know, after 9-11 in America, and I think it is a reasonable comparison to compare what happened in, in Israel to 9-11. I think this was their 9-11. She said, you know, they sat around in a room asking themselves this question, how could we let something like this happen? And their answer was, it was a failure of imagination. You know, these intelligence groups never could have imagined the concept of, you know, terrorists turning an airplane into a missile and flying it into the World Trade Center. It was just simply something they hadn't thought of. And I think for the Israeli government, there was a failure of imagination here. You know, they didn't expect... Hamas to be spending all of this time actually gathering up resources and planning and, you know, flying paragliders over walls and fences and just simply bulldozing the barriers that they've built up and attacking kibbutzim where, you know, a lot of Gazans have worked with people, again, on the political left in Israel who are often people interested in making peace. You know, these were not communities they expected to be attacked. They, did, they were not prepared for how they were going to be attacked. And I think there was a failure of imagination. There was a complacency there. And, you know, that's that's a really big problem. And, um, you know, it's it's not the thing to solve right now. But I do hope in the long term that it costs Netanyahu politically, because, I you know, I can't think of another way for him to fail the country. And I think he has failed Israel. So. Uh, that's obviously my personal opinion, but sure. I would be shocked if he doesn't, you know, pay the price politically once all of this settles down. Well, and that's what happened 50 years ago, right? With Golda Meir. I mean, uh, she uh, people rallied behind her in the uh, Yom Kippur War. And then after afterwards, uh, there was a new government that came to power. Um, but one of the things that I've heard whenever anybody has raised some concern about what might happen to the innocent Palestinians, Palestinian civilians is some version of either there are no innocent Palestinian civilians or, well, this is what they get for electing Hamas as the government. And then Hamas goes and does something like this, realizing fully that the uh, last elections were in 2006. 
How do you respond to that, Isaac? How, how do you respond to anybody that thinks that kind of the, the Palestinian civilians deserve this, or at least we shouldn't be shedding any tears for them because they voted for Hamas and Hamas carried out these atrocities? I, I think it's it's a frankly disgusting and nonsensical response to, to what's happening in, in Gaza right now. And I say that for, for two reasons. Reason number one, just to make an analogy, if you know, a, a, some kind of terrorist came to the United States and killed a six-year-old American today. And the person was from Iraq who, who killed this kid and said that their justification for killing this American child was George W. Bush's Iraq war. Nobody in America would accept that as a, an excuse for, for taking the life of an innocent child. And nobody should accept what Hamas did as an excuse for for Israel. By the way, that was precisely bin Laden's rationale after September 11th. I mean, it's incredible how it's almost right on the nose. It's it's what bin Laden said. I mean, he he literally said that there are no such thing as as innocent Americans because they elected these leaders who brought this, you know, this carnage and this hell to the to the Middle East. That was how he justified it. Um, So, A, I think it's, you know, anytime you're using the same rationale as someone like Osama bin Laden, maybe that's time for a gut check. B, just responding to the to the, you know, the idea that they elected Hamas and they deserve this. I mean, even when Hamas was elected, it was an incredibly divisive thing. Forty four percent of uh, Gazans voted for them. Forty one percent of Gazans voted for Fatah. There was a split opposition to Hamas, which also divided Gazans in some way, which is a big undersold part of the story. Yeah, no, it's and, a it's a textbook study for ranked choice voting. But don't get me started on that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and now, uh, you know, half of all the people in Gaza are under the age of 19. So you take the one million people there right away. Half of the two million people weren't even alive or didn't vote when that election happened. And then, you know, maybe 44 percent of the other one million did and many of those people probably in the last 10 to 15 years have left or been killed you know whatever other other people have come into gaza been forced into gaza so it's it it's very hard to say that you know they deserve this because they elected hamas and the the other thing i'll say is we have polling from you know palestinians it's it can be noisy and sometimes it's contradictory but we have pretty consistent polling that shows that a lot of Gazans wanted, you know, Hamas, want Hamas to work towards some kind of peace process, two-state solution. At least 50% of Palestinians, based on polls that I've seen in the last couple of years, and so you know they don't approve of these kinds of actions. I think you know they rally around them when they feel the violence from Israel, when they're you know under attack, getting the bombardments, those kinds of things. Then people tend to to move towards the more extreme groups. But, you know, there was a time Israel thought Hamas was a reasonable partner, too. I mean, it wasn't so long ago that Israel was funding Hamas because they thought they were a more moderate option. Mm. It wasn't so long ago that they were working side by side with Hamas to organize things like humanitarian aid coming into Gaza because they viewed them as a reasonable partner. I mean, all of that has changed now. But 
that that wasn't so long ago. Last question, Isaac, and I appreciate you being so generous with your time so late at night. A lot of attention being paid to this hospital bombing. The uh, Palestinians are claiming that it was uh, the Israelis that uh, blew up this hospital with hundreds of civilians. The Israelis are uh, claiming that it was a misfired rocket from Islamic Jihad. President Biden seemed to endorse that theory when he said it seems like it was the people on the other team when he made his remarks in Israel yesterday. Well, what's your read on the situation involving that uh, hospital bombing? Yeah, so we're actually going to cover this in tomorrow's edition of Tangle. I've stayed fairly agnostic in, in the early days of a lot of the reporting. I mean, it's a funny thing to watch all the people who were kind of COVID experts yesterday or Ukraine experts a couple of weeks ago who are now suddenly munitions <laughs> experts and war crime experts today. It's pretty... Uh, pretty insane to watch that unfold on social media. I am not a war correspondent. I am not a munitions expert, but the people who are that I follow, the reliable sources who are that I follow are are pretty unanimously coalescing around the idea that Israel was not responsible for this. The the reason they're coalescing around that idea is because a lot of what they've seen at the blast site is is not consistent with the kind of Israeli strike that we've seen mm. throughout this war. I mean, f- frankly, straight up, the initial reporting was erroneous. I mean, a lot of news outlets in the West quoted the Gaza Health Ministry that over 500 people have been killed in this hospital, had been leveled, and there was an explosion, and many people definitely did die, and this was a terrible, terrible tragedy. But the hospital was standing it looks like the explosion, you know, destroyed a few cars that were in this parking lot outside the hospital. But there were also cars parked around that explosion that were totally untouched. It was not the kind of massive blast that we would expect to kill hundreds and hundreds of people. You know, some reporters who went to the site said the windows of the hospital weren't blown out. There were windows of cars in the parking lot that were not blown out. These are the kinds of things war correspondents notice because they're very experienced on the ground. And so that's that's my inclination. Isaac, I, I trust I, those people. I appreciate it. I'm going to have to end it there. And uh, I hope nobody subscribes to your newsletter because it's far too valuable a resource to me. Um, I appreciate you joining me. I hope we can do it again soon. Thanks a lot, Frank. I appreciate the time, man. Thank you. If you want to, that's Isaac Saul, founder of Tangle News. And if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you could do so at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.